You are listening to a sermon by New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. Our psalm today is Psalm 54. We're going to be reflecting on Psalm 54 if you have a Bible, if you turn there. If you don't, it's printed on the bulletin for you. Uh, this semester I've been spending time studying and reflecting on and praying through Psalm 54. I think it's really sweet and it's been really encouraging to me. Uh, I hope it can be to you as well this morning. Uh, if you're able, would you please stand for the reading of the word? This is Psalm 54. The word of the Lord reads this way. O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. You may be seated. Let's pray. Merciful Father, we are able to approach your throne boldly, not because of anything we have or have done, but solely because of the work of Christ for us as our intercessor. Thank you for your word. In it you teach us about yourself. Grant us the spirit of enlightenment, we pray, that the Holy Spirit would work in us, teaching us and making us more like your Son. We pray that you would prepare our hearts this morning. Please use me as an instrument for your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. So I took a journalism class in college. I was thinking a lot about this class as I prepared the psalm, as I reflected on it. You know, one of the first rules or, I don't know, laws even of journalism is to ask open-ended questions. For instance, instead of asking, were you excited when you caught that game-winning touchdown or was it scary when you saw that car crash, you know, one car ahead of you? Instead of that, ask something like, What were you thinking when this happened? What was going through your mind? What were you feeling at this moment? Actually, if we could, that would be a really helpful question to ask any figure in history, wouldn't it? We could ask Noah of Genesis 6, what were you thinking when you brought all those animals on the ark? We could ask the guy who first cracked in a watermelon and ate some of what was inside, what were you thinking? That's what I want to know. Uh, I think it's a brilliant move, but that's a hard shell he had to get through. He just, he kept going. I'm thankful for him. Uh, Sometimes the most illumining, most helpful thing we could know about any event is an answer to this. What were you thinking? Actually, sometimes in the Psalms we get an answer to this. Some Psalms situate the the Psalm in an event in David's life, King David, This psalm, particularly Psalm 54, begins with a sort of a historical prologue. What was going on in David's life when he wrote this? Uh, At the beginning of Psalm 54, we see this is a psalm of David. It's written when the Ziphites said to Saul, is not David hiding among us? 
This event is found in 1 Samuel chapter 23. Uh, it's during Saul's pursuit of David. Maybe you remember, David is anointed king of Israel, but the previous king, King Saul, is not, ex- not excited about this leadership change. He's not happy at all, right? Actually, he tries to kill David time and again. David has to you know, kind of sneak away and hide so that Saul doesn't find him. Eventually, he hides in the land of Ziph, a kind of foresty town. But the Ziphites, the ones who lived there, they were having none of it. They told Saul, and this is 1 Samuel chapter 23, verse 19, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh, on the hill of Hakilah, which is south of Jeshemin? Now come down, O king, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. Not only did the Ziphites tell Saul, hey, you know, David's around here, we think. They told Saul exactly where he was, his exact coordinates. My youth group may say, they dropped a pin for Saul. They said, come here. We got him. Well, we we know that David knew of the Ziphites' betrayal. Actually, this is the psalm that David writes. This is David's cry out to God. What was David thinking in this situation, we want to ask? David is being pursued by men who hate him. Ruthless men are seeking his life, he says. He's been given up. He's been snitched on to Saul. He's coming for him. What was he thinking when he was in trouble? Maybe we haven't had a wild man trying to kill us, but surely we know what it's like to be scared, to mourn, to be afraid. Times when we cry out to God out of desperation, what are we thinking when we're in trouble? When David is pursued, when it looks like he's at the end of his line, he still worships the Lord. How is David moved to joy in this moment What does he have to be joyful for? Where is the joy for us when we're mourning? David in Psalm 54 gives us three assurances. David rests on God's past, present, and future faithfulness. First we see David remembers God's past faithfulness. David remembers God's past faithfulness. David opens up this psalm, O God, save me by your name. Vindicate me by your might. I love this sort of comparison between the two, God's name and God's might. He he parallels them. He can do so because God and his name are closely tied. They're synonyms. We see this all over, but I think a really helpful example is in the Ten Commandments. Remember, this is the Lord giving Moses these commandments, these laws of his covenant. Before the Lord gives the first one, he says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then the third commandment says this, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. God is powerful. God has freed Israel from slavery. He's brought them out of Egypt and he tells Israel, be careful how you use my name, how you talk about my name. He does so because God and his name are closely tied. There's a a literary device I like called aptronym. I like when authors do this. It's when an author gives a character a name that actually reveals something about that character. 
Uh, John Bunyan, for instance, in Pilgrim's Progress, names one of his characters Mr. Talkative. We know what Mr. Talkative does. He talks a lot, right? Maybe you're thinking of Toby Crackett in Oliver Twist. This is a, a character who specialized in picking locks and cracking safes. That's what he did. He cracked it, right? Uh, I had to look this one up, but uh, Draco Malfoy is a kind of a villain in Harry Potter. Draco is a, it's the name of a Greek tyrannical ruler who was very strict, enforced laws, and was without mercy. And then Malfoy is Latin for uh, evil action or something close to that. His very name tells us that he's a bad guy. Maybe this one may ring a bell. SpongeBob SquarePants. I'm sure Ted has never used SpongeBob in a sermon illustration, so this is, we're breaking new ground here. But what do we know about SpongeBob? He's a sponge who wears square pants, right? That, that's pretty helpful. We know this about him. Well, God's very character is revealed in his name. In his name, the God of Israel reveals his faithfulness to his people. David uses three different titles for God. In verse 1, he cries out, Save me, O God! In verse 4, he says, The Lord upholds my life. In, in the Hebrew language, these are both sort of general titles that mean, na- that mean God. They're not his name. But at the end of verse 6, he uses something different. David says, I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. That time, David uses the personal name of the Lord, the one revealed to Moses in the burning bush. He says, I will give thanks to your name, Oh, Yahweh. This is the covenant name of God, Yahweh. From the bush, Exodus 3, God tells Moses to free Israel, to free his people from slavery. Moses, you know, he resists at first, and he says, well, if I do this, who should I say sent me? On whose behalf am I going? God says this, tell him, I am sent you. Tell him, Yahweh sent you, the one who was and who is and who is to come, the one who is unchanging. I am. This is God's covenant name to his people, Yahweh, meaning I am. When David uses this covenant name, Yahweh, it's not by accident. Save me by your name, O God. What is this name? It's Yahweh. The God of David's ancestors, Yahweh, who brought Israel out of slavery, brought them into the promised land, defeated nations, protected his people, raised up leaders and judges. David calls out to Yahweh because of the Lord's faithfulness. He's calling to the judge, the lawgiver, the king, the savior of Israel. There is something in that very name, Yahweh, that is encouraging to God's people. When the Lord tells Moses that he is, I am, he is Yahweh, the Lord reveals his steadfast love to his people. This love, just like God himself, is unchanging. One theologian, Everett DeVeld, puts it this way, by his name Yahweh, the true and living God, revealed that he exists for the sovereign redemption of Israel and for his people throughout history. Yahweh, the God of David's fathers, is faithful. David looks back on this. David sees that God has a perfect track record of faithfulness. 
He has proven himself faithful again and again. He delivers his people time and again, though his people rebel. He's provided for his people. He has not turned his back on Israel. David cries out to Yahweh, save me by your name. Because his very name is evidence that Yahweh is the savior of Israel. And he has been faithful. The Lord's name is powerful. His name is synonymous with who he is. Yahweh saves. I love this verse, Psalm 54, 4. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. There's almost like this building block idea in this psalm. First, David lays the foundation, the groundwork. He looks back on the Lord's past faithfulness. He sees that God has always been faithful. From here, he moves up. In the next level, he moves to his current reality that the Lord is his helper. In doing so, and this is our second point today, David recognizes God's present faithfulness. David recognizes God's present faithfulness. The Lord is faithful to sustain us, uphold us, to uphold all life. See this verb here for uphold. The Bible often uses it in close connection with someone's hands. Someone upholds something with their hands. Maybe this sweet verse calls to mind a song. I won't sing it for you, but you know it. It goes like this. He's got the whole world in his hands. At times, though, this is easier to say than it is to believe, right? It's easy to teach our kids, he's got the whole world in his hands, but it's harder to believe it when it feels like our whole world is coming crumbling down. When you lose a loved one, when you receive a gut-wrenching diagnosis, when you find yourself out of a job, when all your friends have turned their backs on you, they're gone. About a year and a half ago, last March, my wife Emily was 10 weeks pregnant. We were so excited. I had just bought these parenting books. Uh, we were telling our friends the good news. But one Saturday morning, she felt a lot of abdominal pain and we got nervous. We took her straight to the hospital and found out that we had lost the baby she was carrying. I don't pretend to know the struggle and the suffering that some of you are going through today, but I do know that it's hard in that moment to say God is the whole world in his hands, isn't it? It's hard. It's a lot easier to ask, why me? Why is this bad thing happening to me? Or even, where is God in this? That's the question one Jewish rabbi named Harold Kushner asked himself after his son passed away from a rare genetic disease. He actually wrote a book on this called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Maybe you've heard of it. It was a New York Times bestseller for months, years actually. Sold millions of copies. Here's what Rabbi Kushner concluded. God loves you. God is all-loving, but he's not all-powerful. When God sees something bad happen to you, he feels for you, but he can't do anything about it. Now, is that actually encouraging to us at all? Is that comforting in any way? Rabbi Kushner says that when bad things happen to you, the evil is out of God's hands. He can't do anything. God can only offer his support and love. How is this an encouragement to us? How is this supposed to comfort us? It doesn't, does it? If we worship a powerless God, we're out of luck. But David doesn't say that though. Evil and wicked men are on his heels. 
But he still says, God is the upholder of life, of my life, of all life. We may never know the exact details of why bad things happen to us. We don't know God's perfect ultimate plan, but we rest in God's present faithfulness. We can look back and see that he's been faithful in the past. We know that God is the upholder of our life. He's been true to his word. He's always loved us. He's always cared for us. He's presently faithful to sustain us. Now this psalm gives us room to mourn. It gives us room to cry to God. It gives us room to wrestle with God, room to weep with those who weep. We can earnestly cry, save me, O God. But we do so knowing that God is the upholder of life. Tonally, this psalm kind of feels like like a sharp pivot, right? Like a 180. David is in trouble. He says, save me, God. And then verse 5, all of a sudden he says, God will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. Now what happened? David is in trouble and all of a sudden it seems like, you know, poof, it's gone, right? Like, Like the problem is solved. But this isn't the case, actually. The men are still on David's heels. Saul is still trying to kill him. Why then do we find this sort of, this sharp shift? Well, it's because David finds ultimate comfort when he's afraid in mourning because, this is our third point, David relies on God's future faithfulness. David relies on God's future faithfulness. How can David end this psalm by giving thanks to the Lord? Don't forget, David is still in trouble. These guys still want to kill him. He doesn't know the outcome of his current situation, but he says in verse 7, thank you, Lord, for delivering me from every trouble. How does that make any sense, right? That's kind of a bold thing to do. You know, I did something similarly bold a few nights ago. My wife Emily and I had made dinner, enjoyed it, and I put both hands on the table. I stood up, I said, wow, thank you so much, Emily, for doing all the dishes. And I tried to get away with that. You see, we... We had made no arrangement that she was going to do the dishes. She didn't offer to do it, but I said, wow, thank you for doing the dishes. Those of you in here who have been married longer than me, you know that's a rookie spouse move, right? Don't do that. That's right. That's right. I'll let you guess who did the dishes that night. But David says, he's got the nerve to say, he can say, thank you, Lord, for delivering me, even though he hadn't been delivered yet. It's because he relies on the Lord's future faithfulness. Remember David's sort of building blocks of confidence. He establishes the groundwork. The Lord has always been faithful. The next level is the Lord upholds my life. He's faithful and he upholds us. This leads David to form sort of the top level of the pyramid, if I could say that. David is confident that he will be delivered in the future because his salvation is built on God's future faithfulness, which is so sure, it's like it's a done deal. Like David has already been delivered. David knows that he has true deliverance in the name of the Lord. He cries out to God, save me by your name, deliver me by your name. And he's sure he will get it. He doesn't just thank the Lord for deliverance. He offers a free will offering, verse 6 says, Now the people of Israel had all kinds of sacrifices to make. They were obligated to make sacrifices. Sacrifices for sin, uh, sacrifices 
regular sacrifices to maintain the presence of the Lord. But this is a different one. A free will offering is a sacrifice made without any obligation. It's made purely out of joy, out of thanksgiving. It's made freely. David knows that he worships Yahweh, the deliverer, the upholder of life. And out of joy, he makes an offering to God. David freely makes a sacrifice of praise because he knows to whom he belongs. He's part of God's chosen people, Israel. It's like David could say, I belong to Yahweh. Because of the Lord's very name, David knows that there is ultimate deliverance for God's people. Yahweh is faithful, steadfast, long-suffering, patient, and he will deliver his people. David can thank God with such certainty It's like it's already happened, even when he's currently in trouble. David trusted that salvation comes in the name of the Lord, and Yahweh is faithful. Yahweh is ultimately for the sovereign redemption of his people. Though David didn't know the details, he trusted that God would ultimately deliver him from his enemies. Now whether or not he knew it, David was speaking of a greater deliverance, greater one than from just his near enemies, the guys who wanted to kill him. David was waiting for another to come, the one who would come after David, who would secure David's ultimate deliverance, not from these ruthless men, but from sin and from death. This one who came later was without sin. He lived a perfect life. He was born of a virgin, and he died on a cross. His name was Jesus Christ. This man, Jesus, he knew what it was like to be pursued by ruthless men. John 8 tells us of a time when a group of angry Jews are following Jesus. You can imagine they're yelling at him. This is what they say. How can you say that the one who keeps your word will never taste death? And how can you say you've seen Abraham? You're in your late 20s, dude. We know you. But Jesus said to them, this is John chapter 8, verse 58. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I am. Yahweh. Jesus Christ came in the name of the Lord because he is the Lord. Jesus was pursued by men who sought his life. Those men actually got what they were looking for, didn't they? They found him and they killed him. Jesus knows what it's like to be swallowed up in death. But that's not the end of the story. Jesus was raised from the grave. Jesus defeated sin and death. Jesus has given God's people victory over the ultimate enemy. This victory is not just secure for David. Romans 10 tells us, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved saved from sin and death, the ultimate enemies. Now today as we read this psalm, our perspective is different from David's, right? Just because of time. David looked forward to the coming Savior, but we have the benefit of looking backward in history to the work of Jesus Christ. For us, Jesus is an example of the Lord's past faithfulness. The Lord promised to deliver his people, and in Jesus he was faithful to that promise. God sent his son to die on the cross for our sins so that we could be made right with God. 
we have the benefit of seeing Christ's work in history. David didn't live to see the one who would come and who would deliver David ultimately, but we have that privilege. Though our perspective may be different in time, we still worship the same God. We trust in Yahweh. We remember God's past faithfulness. God has not forgotten his people. He has continually provided for Israel and for the church. We know today that the church has gone through hard times. New life has gone through hard times, but God has provided, has he not? The ultimate example of God's provision, though, is when the Lord provided his own son to pay the penalty for our sin. We recognize the Lord's present faithfulness. God is all-loving and all-powerful. Not only does he uphold our life, but he loves us and he hears our prayers. Finally, we rely on the future faithfulness of the Lord when he will make all things new, when our sorrows will be no more, all pain and hurt will be brought to an end. We will be with the Lord for eternity. We await this day because the Lord tells us he will do these things. And because of Christ's work, we will be recipients of those benefits, those who trust in Jesus for their salvation. Church family, if you're here this morning and you feel like the pain is too much, the grief you're facing, the sorrow is too much to bear. Like David, the evil you are facing is hot on your tracks and it's relentless. If you feel this way, may this psalm be an encouragement to you. Mourn, cry out to God, but be encouraged that our ultimate deliverance has been won. Look to Jesus. The Lord is on your side. We worship a God who is alive, powerful, and who cares. By his very name, we know that he is, the, he is for the ultimate redemption of his people. Remember the faithfulness of the Lord. Bask in the Lord's faithfulness. Let's pray. Merciful Father, we are thankful for the faithfulness that you have shown us. You are, you are faithful. You have been faithful in the past. You provide for us. You are presently faithful and you uphold us and you will be faithful to your promises when all pain and sorrow will be brought to an end. We pray today for those who are hurting, for the one who is experiencing sorrow and pain. Lord, give them comfort. Remind them that you are near to them, Lord, that you love them and that you have provided for them, Lord, that their ultimate deliverance has been won. We thank you, Lord, that you love us and that you are faithful. We await the day when you will make all things new. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California, or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church Escondido reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.